The blessedness of our gathering together this afternoon certainly has been great already. We've been able to pray and we've been able to sing praises of great messages of encouragement. And certainly now for the next few moments to reflect at least for a while on a section of the Word of God. Let me encourage you to come to the 8th chapter of Ecclesiastes tonight and we'll devote all of our lesson to some of the features of that chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter number 8. You know, I realize that for a number of Sunday evenings now, we have really been giving some consideration to this book. And as we have done that, we have been encouraged in a number of ways, not the least of which are some of these I have very briefly summarized on that page. We've seen everything from a monotonous characteristic of life to the appreciations of wisdom and riches, and things that can occupy our attention, yet when Solomon tried them, they did not lead to happiness, and they did not lead to a fulfillment in life and a satisfaction that he knew was so desperately needed. As he tried all of them, his viewpoint has ultimately now come to be a bit changed, and he's recognized that in finality, one must give attention to, interest in, and devotion to the things of God. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide that he has mentioned everything from politics to riches to various and sundry oppressions. All the while, remember, as an inspired, wise writer, we have every reason to reflect interestingly upon what he has said. We did notice in chapter 7 that this, that chapter and the couple that follow it will really more than all the others, I guess, be focused on wisdom. And in fact, that word occurs a lot. And that's going to be true again tonight in chapter 8. As we come to that chapter, we will, of course, do somewhat like we've done before. I'd like to read the first nine verses of it, and then we'll reflect for a while on some lessons, and then we'll continue on to some of the next features of the chapter. Ecclesiastes 8, beginning in verse 1. Who is as the wise man, and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God, be not hasty to go out of his sight, stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him." Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore the misery of man is great upon him. For he knoweth not that which shall be. For who can tell him when it shall be? There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that day. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. All this have I seen, and applied mine heart unto every work that is done under the sun. There is a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. Now, pausing at the close of verse number 9, you may initially notice that following, following those introductory ideas, I've entitled this opening section of the chapter, Authority. This might be a fair time to interject at least this thought to the ladies. I'd suggest don't forget about your coming ladies class one week from this coming Tuesday, wherein you'll be looking at 
another element of, of authority because that's the topic of that entirety in book. But Ecclesiastes chapter 8 has some very interesting thoughts about it here in the opening nine verses. Did you note verse number 1? The question starts powerfully, who is a wise man? If you want to know who's wise, one of the features, one of the attributes that will detail a person as being wise is his or her submission to authority. Solomon says here that a wise person will be one who properly submits to the authorities in which that person is to be submissive. Let's begin in verse 1 and see what he says about that. Who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? And it begins like this. A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine. And furthermore, the boldness of his face shall be changed. One of the things that's true here Solomon even affirms it. That person who is understanding of authority and properly submissive to it, that person's countenance will reflect that person's submissive. And that reflection will show in the way they behave, the kind of individual that they are, and furthermore, the way in which you can observe their submission. He says here that wisdom maketh his face to shine. You know, sometimes in the Bible, an individual is spoken of as his countenance falls. That was the case of Cain, wasn't it? His countenance had fallen when he appreciated that God wasn't pleased with his sacrifice in Genesis 4. And yet here you notice this kind of wisdom makes a man's face to shine. In addition to that, the boldness of his face should be changed. That word boldness literally means that which is hard. That frown that would have been on his face, anger, mad, malice, and wrath at perhaps this refusal to submit, with that attitude being right, the person will properly submit. And it'll make so many things in life go far more smoothly. For those reasons, look at verse number 2. In light of those ideas and in conjunction with them, I counsel thee, Solomon writes, by inspiration, to keep the king's commandment. Now Solomon lived at a time when he was the king, and so you may think this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek for him to command people to, to listen to the king when he was the king. May I submit, though, may we never forget that. He is writing as an inspired man, and these are words that are timeless in the sense that they weren't only good for the days of Solomon. They were good for those that followed him, and they are still, of course, good for us. There is something to be said here about, of course, the matter of civil authority. Isn't it true that God has delegated and invested for a right those to exist who possess civil authority? Now, some nations might call them kings, and others might call them bureaucracies and prime ministers and presidents and otherwise. And there are various hierarchies in that degree of authority. We understand well about executive branches and legislative branches and judicial branches. The fact is, in verses like this one as well as some others, we'll see in a moment. It is the will of God that those particulars have the right to exist. In fact, when you and I study the Word of God in connection to them, we learn some things perhaps like this. I would ask you to notice Romans 13 beginning in verse 1. For there in the heart of the New Testament, Paul, rather powerfully, in a day when the Caesar was ruling in Rome, 
at a time when this very tyrannical and sometimes despotic ruler, and to them Paul still could say to the church in Rome, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Furthermore, he went on to say that your submission to them should be sufficient to appreciate that he does not wield the sword in vain. They even have the right of capital punishment. That was certainly true in the Old Testament era. Who Solomon wanted to be killed, he could have it done momentarily. Nonetheless, he said here, I counsel you to keep the king's commandment. But did you notice the reason why? Maybe this is the easy part to, to overlook. He didn't say keep it just because I said so. He didn't say to keep the king's commandment merely because it makes you look good in the presence of society. He said that in regard of the oath of God. You do it because that's the will of God. You do it because, again, that's the thing that pleases God. Now, when you and I remember there were rulers in the Bible, like Herod and Nebuchadnezzar and the Caesars and others, and sometimes they did very difficult things and harsh things. And yet it was still the case that those people who were desirous of serving appropriately the God of heaven understood the requirement of submission. We'll look at some examples of that in just a moment, but as one more element in preparation to it, would you consider verses 3 and 5 of this chapter, Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever he pleaseth. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. That was again an inspired admonition to those of that day. If the king does something that you don't like, or perhaps puts in place something that isn't convenient and favorable to you, don't you be quick, Solomon wrote, to up and run to a new territory or to run to a new jurisdiction. Now, you and I can perhaps understand that if you fly off the handle and run out of Solomon's presence, he could order his officers to go get you and haul you back. And he could make things very unpleasant for you. Well, you'll notice you and I today must be very cautious. One must be very careful given that the God of heaven has delegated authority to civil government. You and I are taught in the first, in fact, in the New Testament, honor the king. There are times that's difficult. There are times that there is a person in office, for instance, in our own country, and that may be in office in Washington, it may be in office in Nashville, may be in office in Cookville or Gainesboro or somewhere else. And nonetheless, in the position that that person occupies, it's a delegated position of authority from God, and we'd better be careful about besmirching the person in light of the fact that they're occupying a position that has been given by God. Now, we may not approve of their decisions, and we have certainly a right in light of the Word of God to express our thought and feeling. But as far as just overt, making fun of them, one of the things to consider, it seems to me, is sometimes in our newspapers, especially syndication, there are those who write cartoons about the president or even other people. May I say, I believe those individuals are doing what the Bible will condemn. 
How can you honor the king in a day when Nero was on the throne in, in Rome, and yet Paul said you honor him, or rather Peter said you honor him? If they weren't at liberty to write cartoons about Nero, and if they weren't at liberty to, in fact, insult him and besmirch him, do you suppose we have that right today? It certainly would seem not. Now again, we have every opportunity to voice our feeling about the moral stances they may take, but to insult the person's character, to do it in light of the fact as if we do not respect the office they hold, we have stepped into the region of error. No wonder in light of that, look again back to Romans 13.1. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers is what it says. And he says it without exception. Now in a moment, we will note one exception, of course. And it's the one that we've already begun to highlight on this slide. The only time in the Word of God that we find an exception to that is that scene of Paul and, or Peter and John in Acts chapters 4 and 5 when Peter rather boldly said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now on that occasion, of course, those authorities had said, you don't preach Jesus and we don't want to hear any more about this man. And Peter rather boldly said, I'm sorry, sir. You tell me not to preach it. Jesus told me to preach it. And I tell you what, we ought to obey God rather than men. And they went right back and preached the same message. Again, you and I appreciate then he had respect to. They did not do anything to insult those authorities. They just kindly said to them, we're going to do what God said. Doesn't that remind us a bit about Daniel and his friends? In the book of Daniel, isn't it true? Again, those three friends were told, you bow down before this image when you hear the music. Did they in any way insult Nebuchadnezzar? Of course not. They simply and very submissively and kindly said, Sir, we're not going to bow down before your image. We serve the God in heaven. If He chooses to deliver us, we shall be delivered. But if not, you need to know we're not going to bow down before that image. That kind of civil disobedience was a powerful thing, wasn't it? It left a lasting impression on that heathen ruler. The same could be said for Daniel three chapters later. At that point, let us close that slide by then noting this. Life brings, of course, so many wonderful blessings to you and to me. Beginning at verse number 6, Solomon, by inspiration, ties that given idea into these observations. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Now at that part of that verse, that sounds somewhat positive. There's time and there's judgment, but then he quickly says, Therefore, he draws a point of conclusion and he says, the misery of man is great. What's this misery that Solomon suddenly has chosen to mention? That misery is mentioned in the next verse. In fact, he elaborates on it. For he knoweth that he is the one that's miserable. He knoweth not what shall be. For who can tell him when it shall be? Solomon says there is a thing that's troubling and a thing that can be so bothersome at times we don't know what the future is. We live in the present, we proceed onward day to day, and yet we have no guaranteed certainty about the affairs on this earth tomorrow, or even beyond that, and what's more about the things that are so near and dear to us. Think about some of the things that matter the most to you and to me. 
like your health or mine. It could certainly be the case, and I wish not to be too negative, but you and I could find ourselves in a much worse shape health-wise tomorrow. Many times you and I have known certain things that can happen. A kidney stone can happen awful quick, and some of you know that as well as I do. When I've had them, again, it can be something that you appear to be fine one moment, and then next minute you're in the floor trying to do the best you can, hoping that you can get to the emergency room as quickly as possible. Or maybe something with your stomach or your heart or something else. May I say, though, in a way it touches you even more nearly and dearly when it's someone that you love so much. What if something were to happen to a loved one health-wise tomorrow? Solomon says this brings an element of misery, and it brings such a consideration of uncertainty. He knoweth not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? And now he elaborates in three explicit ways. And so it is, let's come to verse 8 and look at what he does say about these specific cases. First of all, there is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. May I say that when it comes the time for you and for me to exit the scenes of this life, there isn't going to be anything you and I can do to stop it. When the end of our days arrive, Solomon says here, there's nobody that can keep the Spirit when the time comes for it to go. Now you and I know that when it comes to life, there is an appointment spoken of in Hebrews 9, 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. That appointment, that appreciation leads to the next statement. Neither hath he power in the day of death. Power in the day of death. Now you and I know a Christian is such that Jesus in fact broke the shackles of the power of death. What Solomon's talking about is that power to remain here in the flesh on earth. And Solomon said, I'm telling you, there is no power that will overwhelm that. Modern medicine is in many ways amazing. And I know that there are those who are holding out the hope that there may come a time when medicine may make it such that a person can just live perpetually in the flesh. I'm here to tell you it'll never happen. I know that because it's the Word of God. It isn't my wisdom. The Bible expressly says that death is a certainty. And it doesn't matter how advanced medicine may become, how school doctors may be, and how fantastic those professionals can become, they shall never make it such that life will perpetually exist in this flesh, not for you and me. The reality of that death takes us to the latter part of the verse. And there is no discharge in that war. Now there Solomon makes a connection to times of war. Don't you know that when war breaks out, there will be loss of life. And when the government gives you orders to go, you can't refuse it. You and I sometimes remember the days of the draft when, again, your name was called and you had to go. Solomon highlights that here, and certainly he knew that well when he, in fact, made up the army in the ancient era. One last thing. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Those that are wicked, those that choose to live ungodly, those who refuse to submit to authority. 
That's not going to be that which will excuse them from these rights. They're still going to die, and they still got military obligations. And in the power of death, they'll not be able to retain their spirit. You can see all of these things that rested upon Solomon's heart. And he recorded them for you and me. And verse number 9 rather quickly closes this open discussion of authority. All this have I seen and applied my heart unto every work that's done under the sun. There's a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. That last statement in verse number 9, Solomon even appears to make an admission whether he's referring to himself or whether he's referring to other rulers, he said, I have witnessed those occasions when a ruler actually rules to his own hurt. The things he does, the rules he makes, and the approach he takes actually hurts himself, perhaps as well as many who serve beneath him. That tells us that not all rulers are wise. Not all rulers will do the things that are in the best interest of those who serve beneath them. At that point, verses 10 to 14 take us to the next section of the chapter. Let me read that, and then let's give it some attention as well. Ecclesiastes 8, beginning in verse 10. So, and so I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This is also vanity. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. Now on this next slide. I've entitled this section, Inequity. What appears to be unfair. What appears to be unjust. Again, the word inequity, I thought, was a fair description of this. It all begins, as you can see, in verse number 10. Consider this with me, if you would. I saw the wicked buried. Well, Solomon again makes note that just as surely as the godly will pass on, so too will those who choose to live ungodly, those who are the wicked. But he specifically describes it like this. These wicked had come and gone from the place of the holy. If you're like I am, that shakes me up pretty badly. Solomon said, here's what I've seen. A wicked man died. He was buried, but you know what? There was a time he was holy. There was a time he had gone in and out of the holy place. There was a time he had been right with God, but he chose to forsake it. He chose to be apostate. He chose to become unfaithful. That's a choice that every one of us have, but may we never be foolish enough to make it. Let's stay faithful, because notice the wicked were buried and as he's about to describe, it isn't going to be very good for them. But he said in verse 10, They were forgotten in the city. So this man who at one time had known the blessing of holiness and had been with the faithful, now, since he's gone to be with the wicked, he's been forgotten. Perhaps it had been so long since he'd been with the faithful, and now those that are wicked are not going to think of you and remember you the same way. 
because their heart isn't right to start with. Isn't that a chilling thought? And Solomon said, that's what I've seen. Let's add to that the following. He says, this is also vanity. What a tragedy that someone who was faithful would choose to leave it and then die that way. And yet you and I know that that kind of thing can readily happen all around us. Some folks who knew the urgency of the church and what it stood for and the blessings that go with it, and yet made the deliberate choice to leave it as if something else is better. Demas, in fact, in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul said, with almost proverbial tear on Pony's face, Demas has forsaken me because he's loved this present world. It happens, doesn't it? May you and I again realize that Solomon in his infinite wisdom, or at least in his notable wisdom, pointed out here, I've seen this and how tragic it is. Perhaps that tragedy takes us to verse number 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. A valiant lesson there for every one of us. There is no arena that I can think of in life for which that's not good advice. To paraphrase it, deal with a problem speedily. Parents, when your child does something amiss, don't wait a week or two to punish them. Do it right then. That's when the message will mean the most to them. It's when it'll be the most memorable and when they'll know exactly what was done and their memory will let them to retain it. If you wait a week, a month or so, by that point, the urgency's been lost. We all know what's happened in our nation. Someone commits a crime, and it may be 40 years later before that person's put to death. It just ought not be that way. The whole generation that knew about it, they've all died. That person ought to have been dealt with much, much more quickly than that. And we see the reason why. In verse 11, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And when you postpone the punishment and procrastinate it, even if you do deliver it, the sons of men during that time period, they'll be emboldened to do it. Well, he did it and nothing happened. I believe I can get away with something like it. And it happens time and again in our country every single day. Many years ago, there was a study done when capital punishment, or at least extraordinarily severe punishment, took place quickly, the crime rate dropped by orders of magnitude. It does make a difference. When those who commit crimes see others put to death for the very same thing that they were contemplating doing, they tend to think twice about doing it. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? All of that's found in verse 11. Let's read verse 12. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God. There has been an issue, I suppose, all throughout time in which that very matter has been an agitator. It's been a troubling thing. Someone who tries to do what's right. And they look about him and says, Well, that guy never goes to church services. In fact, he's a rascal and a scoundrel and everybody knows it. 
and he's got a four-car garage, and he owns 75 acres, and he buys anything he wants, and he's got a great job. Solomon says, I know that those that fear God, it's going to work out better. We have to believe that. Now, in this life, Solomon was quick to grant. The wicked may appear to prosper, but you and I know in this verse and the next one, look at verse 13. It shall not be well with the wicked. Again, it may appear that all is well with this person. He has no eternal salvation. His sins are not forgiven. He doesn't know about the home of the soul. And all the greatest blessings of life, of course, can't be bought with money anyway. And he doesn't have them. Well, Solomon said, I've seen it. And he reminds all of us. And may we too be encouraged to appreciate that regardless what appears to be the case about us and those who appear to succeed and those who appear to have it so well. Verse 14 summarizes, or rather verse 13 says that those who are the wicked are not going to have it very well. Now certainly as you and I keep in mind the reality of the day of judgment and the verdict that shall be rendered, and the final vengeance that God shall take upon the wicked, we know then what a thunderous and terrorizing thing it'll be not to be right then. May I say every inconvenience and every apparent slight we may have to suffer here will be worth it come that day. For those reasons, you and I notice, verses 12 and 13 Bring us to note this one, and perhaps verse 14 summarizes it. There's a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. I'll stop in mid-verse on that one. We perhaps would realize that we would wish it to be this way. I want every faithful person to have everything just right. And I want the wicked to suffer. I want the wicked to be the ones that get cancer. And I want the wicked to be the ones that are killed in car wrecks. And I want the wicked to be the ones whose house is burned or destroyed in a tornado. But we know it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes it's your house or mine. Sometimes you or I get the bad report from the doctor. Sometimes you or I are the one in the car wreck. Solomon said, if we had it our way, I'm sure we'd wish it the other way. But we've got to trust that God's way is always the better one. And he says that for those that are wicked, it's not going to work out well. But for the faithful, even in the consideration of those things, it still works in their favor. Look at how that verse ends. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God giveth him under the sun. When you and I appreciate then the way of the wicked, we ought to feel sorry for them. Though they may appear to prosper, they still don't have what we do. And may you and I never fall into the trap of wanting to be like them in every regard because we'll forfeit our salvation if we behave in an unrighteous way. No wonder in light of those things. Those verses perhaps are summarized 
with that question that I've used in your close that slide. Why did the wicked prosper? And why is it that the godly sometimes suffer? That question I might submit to you has been the one that has been a source of challenge throughout the ages. I thought I might reserve a more extended development of it for an, for an entire lesson of its own. Why do the wicked prosper so much? And why is it that the godly, the faithful, sometimes are called to suffer so much? There have been cases in which individuals wrestling with those thoughts have left the faith. If that's what faith is, I don't want any part of it. And so they leave the faith that they, that, that they once had known. Well, may I say the Bible has much to say about this. And again, we'll perhaps use an entire lesson for that. But just keep in mind this brief answer. The ways of this world and the reality of so much of the evil that's around us, it's not God's doing. God didn't make evil. He made man with a capacity to choose to do good or to choose to do evil. And as we learn in chapter 7, verse 29 of this book last week, God made man upright, but man has sought out many evil inventions. Man chooses to do what's evil on so many occasions, and as a result of that, it's hurtful, and it brings so much difficulty and weariness into our, into our world. But the last section of the chapter, Solomon closes this chapter and makes one final set of observations. And he does so in what I've called mystery. Mystery. Now, I know there are occasions when there are those who love a good mystery novel, and, well, let's see what kind of mystery is involved here. Beginning in verse number 16, "...when I applied mine heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done upon the earth." For also there is that neither day nor night see asleep with his eyes. Then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, farther, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. That says a lot about human wisdom, human knowledge, doesn't it? And I've tried to summarize some of the features this way. Our God is great. He is infinite. He genuinely is awesome. In light of those appreciations, would you reflect upon that verse? Solomon even highlighted men are going to try to find out the work of God, and they're going to try to seek to understand it in its fine detail. And Solomon didn't just suppose they'll not be able to do it. He said, they shall not find it. There are many things about the ongoing working of this world that mankind will never know. I say that with confidence. It's not because science hadn't yet discovered it. It's not because philosophy and other realms of knowledge have not ultimately made it known. It's that we shall never be able to appreciate it. It's that way because God does not want it to be known. His ways are greater than ours. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. 
You see, it's not going to be possible for us to fully and appreciately, with appreciation, intricately understand all the avenues of the ongoing working of this universe and the things God has made. We certainly would do well to seek to understand as much as we can, but may we never get to the point that we think we know it all. For this verse tells us we don't. Furthermore, along that line, I might ask you to appreciate, there have been occasions in the Bible when there were individuals who seemingly had ideas, at least in this direction. Now, thankfully, they didn't come to the extreme of it, but consider the situation of Job. In 42 chapters, that book of Job reveals to us this. There was a bit of a discussion that started that book. But Job didn't know a thing about it. The God of heaven and the devil, Satan, were involved in a conversation. Hast thou seen my servant Job, God said. The devil said, yeah, I've seen him. And I'll tell you what else. He only serves you because you bless him so much. If you remove the blessings, he won't serve you. All throughout that book is a continued development. And Job never knew about that conversation. He was the one in the middle and the one that ultimately would suffer at the hand of what the Satan had brought upon him and he never knew what the cause was. Had he known, that would in no doubt have motivated him even in greater faithfulness. But he never knew. I wonder, are there times in your life or mine where we may be involved in things, enduring things, called to suffer things, and we may again, just like Job, never know the finality of the eternal things behind it. That's something to seriously consider, isn't it? I ask you to consider in Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, what seems to me the grander position to take. I'd like to read those verses, and you might want to consider them as well. Romans 11 beginning in verse 33. It's one of the grandest anthems, almost, you could call it a doxology, anywhere in the New Testament. Paul had these words to say, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. His ways are past finding out. His judgments are beyond our full capability. What we know is what he has revealed. And thanks be unto him for that. But as far as those things outside this, we're not ever going to know all of those ways because His ways are greater than ours. Our chore is to be submissively faithful and to know that in the hollow of His hand, it'll always work out good. It'll always work out in our favor. And we rest assured knowing no matter what that we'll be able to leave this place and go to a far better one. Ecclesiastes 8 has offered many words of comfort Many words of challenge as well. Let's close this particular lesson with this very brief summary. We've noticed that the chapter could perhaps be divided into three, three sections. 
a consideration of authority, the right of civil authorities to exist and our proper appreciation with regard to them. And then a section dealing with inequity, what appears to be so unjust and unfair, and yet it really isn't. And finally, a section concerning mystery, God's ways past finding out. How thankful we can be to be a Christian, to be a faithful servant to the God of heaven. I hope that we can all look forward to what chapter 9 is going to hold for us. It's going to continue to challenge us and lift our thoughts above the mundane horizon about us and to see in these inspired words the great statements of this man Solomon from ages past. Tonight, as you and I analyze ourselves, what about our position concerning authority and our understanding relative to both mystery and inequity? May we never allow any of that to deter us from faithful service to God. This evening, if there would be anybody in the audience, any person, and you realize that things are not well with your soul, this song of encouragement has been selected and we are delighted to offer the help that we can. We all want to go to heaven and we want every single person to join us. As we strive toward that goal, we of course must do so following the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2 verse 10. He is our forerunner that has already made his way to heaven, and if he's our forerunner, we can follow him and end up where he is. Tonight, if there's anyone that's not a faithful Christian, maybe having once been one but no longer are, come back to your first love. If you'll come down this aisle and you'll in fact make confession of those things and repent of them, God has promised to forgive them. We'll simply approach Him in prayer and beseech a power and strength on His behalf and He will bless your life. And you'll be able to proudly wear that name Christian and proceed with strength day by day. If we can help you tonight in that regard, in that way, we'd like to do it at once while together we stand and sing.